This episode was recorded on April 28th. On May 1st, the FDIC took over First Republic Bank and sold it to J.P. Morgan. This episode looks at the issues First Republic Bank was facing before it was shut down. As we know, CNBC reporting that First Republic likely headed to FDIC receivership. Uh, Can First Republic survive? Please go ahead. Despite the uncertainty of the past two months, and while average account sizes have decreased, we have retained over 97% of client relationships that banked with us at the start of the first quarter. Let me now discuss our current funding. As the industry events unfolded in March, we experienced unprecedented deposit outflows. Beginning the week of March 27th, our deposits stabilized and they have remained stable since that time. And I wanted to answer the question, is it solely bank contagion or do they have bad loans on their books? Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. We're your hosts. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. We are in the midst of bank earnings season, and we're about three weeks out from the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Mm -hmm. This week, we got a look into First Republic Bank's financials after 11 lenders stepped in to shore up the San Francisco-based bank's deposit base. And Friday, we saw how New York Community Bank fared. NYCB is a competitor of Signature that actually took on the failed bank's deposits, but not its commercial real estate loans last month. So the question surrounding both was whether the runs that tanked Silicon Valley Bank and Signature spread to other regional banks. But first, let's get into the other news of last week. So after the real deals, Catherine Brenzel reported Governor Kathy Hochul's New York housing compact had essentially bit the dust. We finally got a quote, conceptual budget from Albany last Thursday. As a refresher, the housing compact sought to add 800,000 homes in 10 years, which was supposed to be the state's answer to the growing housing crisis. And why couldn't that pass? The sense is that Hochul packed too many contentious proposals into one budget bill, and that led to a standoff between the parties that were advocating for each. So the good cause 421A extension is a good example of two parties butting heads. So tenant groups wanted renters to get this protection from eviction if their rent went up above 5%. Landlord groups wanted the deadline to score a critical tax abatement for multifamily development to be extended. Landlords hate good cause, tenants hate 421A, or their advocates do at least. So neither got what they wanted in the end. So what housing measures ultimately went through? Yeah, few and far between. So we saw an extra $391 million set aside for rent relief. That specifically is going to public housing and subsidized tenants. But advocates had asked for $2 billion, so the extra funding is really just a drop in the bucket there. Um, There was also a ban on gas hookups and new construction that will start in 2025 in small buildings and 2028 for larger ones. And that's it. Wow, really bare bones. I'm sure the industry is not too, too thrilled about that. 
Jumping down to Florida, there's lots of news coming out from the state last week. Catherine Kalurgis reported that a bill proposed by state lawmakers would severely restrict real estate investment from Chinese buyers. The sense is that the legislation, if it passes, would have ripple effects for the rest of the foreign investment market. So would you say the bill is an outright ban on Chinese investment? Yeah, that's right. After July 1st, any Chinese businesses or people living in China who are not U.S. citizens or residents and currently own real estate would not be able to buy additional properties. Those investors would also have to register additional properties with the state, a rule some critics have compared to a decree Hitler ordered that required all Jews in Germany and Austria to register their properties with the state. Gosh. Okay. So would any other countries be coupled into that ban? Yeah. So it would also block foreign nationals from Russia, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, and Syria, so autocratic countries, from buying farmland or land within 20 miles of a U.S. military base. The worry around farmland is tied to the Chinese spy balloon debacle in some respects. The worry is foreign governments could use U.S. land for espionage efforts. Got it. Okay. So another piece of news, even as home sales across South Florida have dwindled, the ultra luxury market in Palm Beach has just been on fire. The latest sale to smash a record was by luxury car dealer Michael Cannonucci. He bought a 20,000 square foot mansion. So think 10 beds, 11 baths, a pool, a summer kitchen for $170 million, um, And that purchase set a fresh high for single family home sales on the island. So West Palm Beach is a market that has really stood out as home buying has slowed, you know, across the country. I think that that's definitely worth a deeper dive sometime in the future. Definitely. It also looks like Brookfield is dealing with more distress. You broke that story, Isabella. Yeah. So Brookfield's gas company tower, one of its core assets in downtown L.A., went into receivership last week. Um, It was another heavy hit for the firm. Brookfields had already defaulted on a $350 million loan connected to the building. So this is really, you know, the outcome of that. And it is an alternative to bankruptcy. Mm, Okay. So can you explain receivership a little bit further? Yeah. Basically, a court appoints a third party to make the creditors whole, be it a bank or the bondholders in the case of CMBS debt. So that receiver can restructure and refinance the debt to work out the delinquency. So they can you know, usually, and in this case, they have the power to market the building for sale, and then any proceeds from that will go towards paying off creditors. It seems like Brookfield was dealing with low occupancy at that tower. Was that the same for the other office buildings that saw defaults earlier this year? I think it was February, right? Yeah. So the gas company tower was one of the two that it defaulted on. It was 73% leased, and it dealt with low occupancy at 777 Tower, which is the other office building it defaulted on. Um, In total, it was about $784 million in loans that it defaulted on. But it's not just low occupancy causing the damage. The firm is really grappling with rising rates, which has really increased its monthly debt payment on the properties. Mm. So since we're in the world of rising rates, let's jump into some of these earnings. As I mentioned, New York Community Bank reported on Friday, which was a highly anticipated release amid the contagion fears about a run on regional banks. 
So what was the takeaway? Did we see a big drop in deposits? Actually, no, which is good news for New York Community Bank and regional lenders in general. The bank reported a 10% dip in deposits before it picked up signatures deposits, but it had been projecting a 20% drop. So all told, not too bad. And if you factor in signatures assets, which it acquired, New York Community Bank had a net gain of $26 billion in deposits or a 44% increase from what it held in the fourth quarter. Okay, so what does the bank plan to do with that cash? Because few deposits is bad because it's a liquidity issue, but too many deposits can also be bad because the bank has to pay interest on those deposits. Right. So one caveat there, about a quarter of its current holdings are non-interest bearing. So those deposits are just money sitting there. It does not need to pay interest on. But it did say it plans to use the rest of that money to pay down debt it owes to other banks or the Fed. So it's not just going to hold it on its balance sheet. Got it. That's interesting. And what about its loan book? We know that New York Community Bank did not acquire Signature's commercial real estate-backed loans. Industry insiders said NYCB snubbed that debt because of the high portion of rent-stabilized loans, which we know to be a distressed asset class. Did NYCB report any distress there? Yeah, also no. It specifically said it had no late payments among its rent-stabilized or office properties. Office obviously being another sector that's closely watched by the industry, giving all of the distress we've talked about over the past few months. So, so far, the pain is not showing up for the regional lender. It did acknowledge that some office loans would be coming due, but it really stressed that You know, it was a conservative lender with strict underwriting standards, and those loans had healthy debt service coverage ratios. Okay, so NYCB seems to have skated through the crisis largely unscathed. But First Republic, not so much. Isabella has done some of the deepest reporting on the bank since the turmoil started last month. So today, I'm going to be interviewing her as our expert guest. (laughs) I am honored. Honored to be here. (laughs) All right. So why don't you ground us in the origins of the banking crisis and we can take it from there? Sure. So just for a little recap, let's go back to March 8th. Tonight, a bank has been seized by state and federal regulators. This is the biggest bank failure since 2008. And this evening, so many customers demanding to know where is our money? This bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, a favorite of the tech industry. Silicon Valley Bank, which mostly catered to startups and venture capital firms, but also had some real estate holdings, collapsed after the bank was forced to sell a portfolio of bonds at a $1.8 billion loss. That spurred customers to start pulling out deposits like crazy. Two days later... Meanwhile, Signature Bank marks the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. Signature Bank goes under. Another regional bank, this time it's based in New York City. Right. That hit the real estate industry in New York harder, given Signature was such a prominent multifamily lender. They had almost the bank had almost 20 billion just in multifamily loans and SVB had about 11 billion in loans secured by residential mortgages and commercial real estate for context. Yeah. So Signature was definitely a bigger shock to the real estate industry. So after those two collapses, people start freaking out about regional banks in general. They start pulling deposits out because regional banks have now proven themselves that they can fail. They're not the J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, which, you know, are classified as too big to fail banks. I was at a conference last week, actually, and Fannie Mae's chief economist, Doug Duncan, was a panelist. And he said there are two types of banks, one of which was too big to fail. And after the panel was done, someone in the audience asked, Okay, well, what's the other category? And he was like, oh, banks that can fail. (laughs) (laughs) 
seems obvious, but it's good to know. Um, okay. And right. And since 2008, we hadn't really seen that. Exactly. So people are spooked and start pulling money out of regional banks, which include First Republic. And they were pulling out shares, right? Because I really want to dive right into where we are seeing the most movement here. And that is in First Republic Bank. First Republic down 75% over the past three days. This morning alone, we saw it plunge by 65%. It, get, it got halted for volatility. That's something that was happening periodically. Yes. So pre-SVB collapse, First Republic was trading at about $120 a share. By March 13th, the bank's share price had dropped about 75% to $30 a share. Okay, so that catches us up on the background. And then two weeks after that, you had a story about some of the issues on the firm's balance sheet. So talk to us a little bit about how you started reporting that out. Yeah, so obviously I was reading that people were pulling their deposits out of First Republic. And I wanted to answer the question, is it solely bank contagion or do they have bad loans on their books? I started making some calls to economists, academics, people in the financial industry, and I ended up speaking with Eric Sussman, an adjunct professor at UCLA, who kind of rerouted my question. He told me I should be looking at the fact that First Republic has so many mortgages on their books that were issued in a low interest rate environment. And he said those loans are now causing financial issues for the bank. So I did. I started looking through First Republic's annual financial reports. And what did you find? Well, first, I think it's important to note their business model. They basically only target high net worth individuals with credit scores over 780. So wealthy buyers with excellent credit. And in large part, that was a result of the financial crisis when banks saw the fallout from making subprime home loans to borrowers with poor credit. First Republic decided to pivot and go the other way. And their whole shtick was being able to offer super competitive loans at very low interest rates. So take the year 2021, interest rates at historical lows. To remind you, the average mortgage rate at the end of the year was 2.96%. Very different to like, you know, the 6.57% area that we're getting into now. First Republic said that its average rate or yield on residential real estate loans in 2021 was 2.82%, so much lower than that average mortgage rate across all banks. And in 2021, it held $73 billion in residential mortgages. Ooh, yeah, that's a lot of low interest rate mortgages. Right. And those loans are on their books for a long time. Mortgages are fixed rate, most commonly with 30 year terms. And what are they going to do? Ask a borrower and say, hey, would you refinance your loan at a higher rate now that interest rates have risen? No, they can't. They can't do that. Right. OK, so how do all of those low interest rate mortgages create an issue for the bank? Well, Interest rates have shot up since then. The federal funds rate, which is the rate index the Federal Reserve uses, is at 4.83%. And when interest rates rise, we talked a little bit about this earlier, banks have to start paying out more on certain deposits like savings accounts. That's how they stay competitive, too. Think about a few weeks ago, I'm sure we all saw this news, when Apple and Goldman Sachs said they would open up a new high-yield savings account for customers with an API or annual percentage yield of 4.15%. So if you put in $100, you get an extra $4.15 in interest into your account at the end of the year. If you go to First Republic's website right now, 
the bank is offering certificates of deposit with rates of 4.95%. That's much, much, much higher than the 2.96% average mortgage rate on its balance sheet. Yeah, so there seems to be a mismatch there. The interest rates are good for consumers, but the expenses for the banks go up. Exactly. The bank has to start paying out more in interest than it's reeling in from its long-term mortgages. It's created what's called an asset liability mismatch. As the name suggests, it's a situation where assets don't match liabilities. Got it. Okay. So let's jump to the bank's earnings last week. I'm going to spit off some numbers here and you can dissect them um, if you would. So first, the bank lost $102 billion in deposits. What does that mean? Yeah. So up until Monday, we really had no idea how much First Republic had lost in deposits after the collapse of SVB and Signature. We knew that 11 banks had to put in $30 billion in uninsured deposits to stabilize it. So we had an idea that it was bad, but we didn't know how bad. Financial analysts were also expecting it to be, you know, bad. Raymond James, an investment bank based in Florida, said it expected a, quote, material decline in core deposits. But $102 billion was way, way worse than analysts had expected. It ended the quarter with $104 billion in deposits. And that number included the $30 billion from those 11 banks. So First Republic lost more than half of its deposit base in three months, and really more like one month or even three weeks since all of this happened after SVB. Yeah. So that's that's impactful. That's a big thing. So what does that mean for the bank's operations? Well, banks need deposits to make loans, any sort of loans, whether it's to build a multifamily property or buy a $10 million home in the Bay Area. And the real estate industry relies on lending to exist, right? That's how they buy properties. If First Republic closes, that will tighten up lending. And right now, commercial real estate owners in particular need every source of funding they can get. Given $137 billion worth of commercial-backed loans are coming due by the end of this year and need to be refinanced. So commercial borrowers need options. Okay, so that leads us into our second number. First Republic increased its loan book to $173 billion in the first quarter, and that's a 4% increase from the fourth quarter of last year. So what does that number mean? So essentially, the bank is getting more deals done. Its activity is rising. It's modest. But it did say that that addition was primarily due to increases in single family and multifamily loans. Okay. And then we have the bank's interest expenses, $555 million in the first quarter. Now, this is a staggering figure. I had to do the, I did the math on this like 10 times to make sure that I was correct. But that is a whopping 2,675% increase from the first quarter of last year when they reported $20 million in interest expenses. Again, almost 2,700% increase, almost 28 times. Okay, so that directly shows the impact of interest rates. Right. You raise rates and all of those liabilities become more expensive. You have to start paying out more. Okay. And then our final figure, the bank reported $923 million of net interest income. Yeah, so that's basically how much revenue is generated from all interest-bearing assets minus the expenses that the bank is paying on interest-bearing liabilities. In more simple terms, how much it's reeling in from commercial loans, mortgages, other business loans, minus the expenses on customer deposits. Right, because loans are assets. Mm-hmm. 
deposits are liabilities. Okay. So that number is still positive. Yes. They're still making more from their loans, but it is down 21% from the previous quarter. And the bank's income is not increasing 2,700% year over year like their expenses are. The New York Times deal book actually called the bank's first quarter earnings, quote, disastrous. Who knew that low interest rate mortgages could pose, you know, such a problem for the bank? It's counterintuitive, right? After what happened in 2008, this was the safe route, except for the fact that they seemed to not have considered that the Fed would hike rates seven times over the course of the year. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, people sort of took the Fed at its word when it said that inflation would be transitory. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, you know, and they had to take action. Okay. So I also wanted to ask about the bank's earnings call on Monday. You mentioned we talked earlier in the week and you said it was cut short, right? Right. I think it lasted almost 15 minutes. Please note that there will be no question and answer session following our prepared remarks. And there was no question and answer session with analysts, which is shocking. Earnings calls can last up to an hour, and usually those calls give investors the opportunity to dig into their financials a little more, get a little bit more information about a certain deal or strategy. Yeah, because otherwise it's just the the firm, the company, giving its version of events with no pushback from folks who cover those companies. Exactly. And they can give kind of the top line overview without getting into some of the specifics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a way to work the numbers a lot of the time where it doesn't seem as bad as it is. Like they'll compare it to a more favorable quarter or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at, you know, historically, I was trying to figure out, you know, how many times does a company not do a Q&A. And I found this study from the University of Texas at Austin that found that when a company doesn't take questions or takes just a few questions during a quarterly earnings call, that company actually sees a dip in stock prices after. Mm. So it feels like you're giving us a little foreshadowing here, but I'll ask anyway. How did investors react to that news? Yeah, I think I gave that away. As of Friday morning, Its stock price was down to about $3.75 a share, down about 76% since it released earnings on Monday and about 95% since the start of this year. So pretty negatively, I would say. And what happens to the bank now? It already got the $30 billion injection. So like, are there other lifelines available? Yeah, there are a few paths here. First, the bank is reportedly looking into selling some of its long-term mortgages and other securities. Bloomberg had that story. It's weighing selling it's weighing selling between 50 and 100 billion dollars. Second, a larger bank could come in and buy First Republic, but we haven't seen a buyer emerge yet. And going back to the point that I made before, you'd think that many banks would be yearning for First Republic's assets, right? Mortgages made to wealthy people with great credit. But those mortgages are worth less now, given interest rates. So any bank coming in would be buying those at a loss. Has First Republic said how much less its assets are worth now? The bank disclosed at the end of last year that the fair value of its real estate loans was about $19 billion below what they paid for it, you know, minus general depreciation. But it hasn't given updated numbers since then. The gist is, it seems like no one wants to put First Republic's problematic low interest rate mortgages on their books, given the current rate environment, because they have dramatically dipped in value. 
Mm. I mean, that kind of reminds me of what's going on with signatures, uh, rent stabilized loans. You know, it's like if these loans are a liability as opposed to an asset, why would I take them on? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, and then it seems like there's one more path here, right? Yeah. FDIC receivership, like we saw with both Signature Bank and SVB. The federal government is reportedly in talks to figure out, you know, how to intervene with First Republic. That's according to Reuters and CNBC. But nothing has come to fruition yet. But we are sitting here on Friday morning. So I'm really hoping nothing happens after this. But like we saw with Signature, they shut down on a Sunday. Yeah, it totally could, given how fast SVB and Signature Bank moved. It was really a matter of hours. If anything does happen, we'll obviously, you know, chat about it next week. We're also having Fannie Mae's chief economist, Doug Duncan, I mentioned him earlier, on the podcast next Monday to discuss his thoughts on the banking crisis, how it's affecting credit tightening, and what all of that means for home buyers and sellers. Until then, feel free to reach out to either of us at podcasts at therealdeal.com if you have any ideas or pitches you'd like to share. We'd love to hear them. Mm -hmm. So tune in next week. <laughs>